0: Family peer support means having someone to walk the journey with me. We're not alone. What family peer support means to me is hope. Hope and connection. Being able to live in the present. Being heard, being understood, and finding out that you're not alone. And having hope.
1: Hello, welcome to Montana's Peer Network Recovery Talks podcast. I'm Jim Haney.
0: Hi, I'm Beth Ayers.
1: And I'm Kayla Myers. So today we are going to be talking to Beth and Kayla, and we're going to be talking about um, their work as family peer supporters, but really we're going to actually talk to them, probably mostly I'm thinking about uh, being moms and navigating the system with children with special health care needs. What's that like? And kind of get into that conversation like a little deeper but then i'm very curious also at the same time about their work as family supporters and now that they're working you know sort of i'm going to say behind the the curtains you're on the inside how does that look and and what does that look like so i don't know uh how we want to jump in we had really good discussion when we were warming up um and good, good material, but, um,
0: I can share my story.
1: Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. If you want to start Beth, that would be great. And then we'll get to the family support stuff, you know?
0: Sure. So I am a mom of two children. I have a 24 year old and a 19 year old. And when my oldest was about 13, we had our first experience in the behavioral health. Um, the, We went to the hospital, to the emergency room, and then to the psychiatric center inpatient. And we spent probably the next three to four years trying to navigate the behavioral health system and all the different services and what was available and how insurance fit in. And um, through all of that and being very frustrated with it and feeling like I didn't have all the information. I didn't have the information that I should have had in order to make these choices for my child. Um, so from that, I became a family peer supporter, and now I get to help families kind of have those questions or have that information ahead of time so that they can make um, choices for their children.
1: Okay. Hey, thank you, Beth. Thank you. A great introduction. Kayla, how about, how about for you?
0: Yeah. So
2: um, Beth and I kind of talk about this all the time, like our stories as as moms during our journey navigating systems and diagnoses are very different from each other. But I still feel like a lot of the time we had the same feelings of um, hopelessness and frustration and sadness and grief and um, you know small wins that we've shared um, together. But um, so I my name is yeah I'm Kayla Myers and I also am a family peer supporter. Um, I have my own diagnoses, like my behavioral health diagnoses and that I got later in life. And I have a child who's now seven and he was diagnosed at four, but started to regress when he was um, two and a half with autism and he is now nonverbal and has uh, a diagnosis also of anxiety. So um, it was very surreal to have a child you know, hit all of his milestones, and he was talking, and he was thriving, and then all of a sudden, slowly, after his couple months after his uh, second birthday, just started totally morphing and changing into a totally different child. Um, He lost all of his words. He was um, very um, non-engaging. He was you know, played with toys, very oddly lined things up. I was really the only one that could kind of come near him and his toys. And um, yeah, it was a very, um, it was a very strange time to have one child. And then it's almost like you're grieving the child that you already have, but that child's still there, but it's a totally different parenting style. And um, yeah, navigating that alone was, was very, very um, scary and hard but
1: thank you thank you for that another great introduction so what 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 um as you reflect back here it's been a few years for each of you sounds like and when you think back about the the system what do you what what was most frustrating you know what what comes to mind when when we pick this topic to talk about today you know what what comes to mind? What was most frustrating as as a mom?
0: for me, it was not being able to get the care that my child deserved or that she needed, either because of there weren't the services or the providers. There were long wait lists. Insurance wouldn't cover things.
1: like what kind of what kind of wait lists did you encounter?
0: Well, I'm trying to think back. It's been a long time. So after Mm -hmm. we first went into the emergency room, we got connected with a psychiatrist. Um, And because we were through the inpatient clinic, um, that happened fairly quickly. However, if we had wanted to be proactive and have a psychiatrist before we ended up in crisis, you're looking at least six months wait time. And I think that's how it was for everything. It was, if you want these services right now, first, you have to be in crisis. Then you go to the ER, then you go to the inpatient and then you have, you know, all the access you want to all of these services. Um, I always wanted to not wait till it was a crisis and be proactive, but that's not how the services work. And that's not how our, um, the insurance that we had, um, wouldn't cover something unless the child showed that they desperately needed it so like we couldn't show that they do they had to first be in crisis and then they got access
2: because a parent wouldn't know when their child is in crisis but we don't want to be proactive no no right right,
1: right no which which flies against which flies against i mean the whole idea of things like recovery and and wellness preventative mm-hmm. care right which is we want to be proactive we don't want to spend a lot of money in the emergency room or emergencies type services we want to get on the front end of it it's interesting Caleb what about what about for you what stands out for you
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I kept bringing things up, but like I said, you know, he hit, he was hitting milestones and I kept bringing things up to doctors. Like, is it weird that he's not talking as much? Like his brother talked a lot more than he did at this age. Oh yeah, that's probably normal. We'll get him in speech. You know, I really had to use my voice quite a bit and say, you know, I I'm, I'm still a newish parent, you know, Easton's only five, but he was doing a lot different things at five or at, um, at two, two and a half, you know, three years old. And, you know, the thing I think that was the most frustrating for me, looking back now at the time, it wasn't frustrating because I would, have I would do it all over again. I was, I was just being Bryce's mom and his advocate. Um, but I was having to call different entities myself. Nobody said, here, Kayla here's the phone number list you know you know those big long annoying phone list that they give you with all these numbers I never right. got a single one of those I was calling mm. people that I knew that worked with children with special needs um, my friend in Nevada runs a um, organization that they um, or it's a it's a state-funded program that um, helps parents with uh, the cost of therapy for children that have autism so I called her. So I'm I'm calling all these people, I'm not talking to doctors, I'm not talking to therapists. I was having to get a hold of early childhood intervention and I was having to call different um, therapists to see who had um, you know, openings and um definitely got taken advantage of by a therapy center um in town. I yeah, I mean there's a lot of stories that are similar to mine within this. So what that also happens is there's these young children and these naive, scared, hopeless, overwhelmed parents. And then there's also entities that are taking advantage of these young, Mm. scared or young children, scared, naive to how therapy works, um, Mm. how it's filled out to insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, looking back, I think that, you know, there was nobody to lean on to help Guide me in the right way. I just had to start googling and, um, you know, kind of going full force into that. But no one was, no one was checking in on Bryce. No one was checking in on me. It was me having to just um, set forth and kind of do it on our on our own. So, yeah, it was. It was. Now looking back, I'm like, where were all? Where was everybody? Where were all these professionals that should have been? Right stepping in and saying, oh no, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. No, it was just me doing it. I did it.
1: Why do you think that the provider agencies didn't or, or, or don't? Why do you think that is? What's the, what's the barriers there?
2: I think, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly yet, but I think being a family peer supporter now, and hearing different stories, and hearing the things, you know, from the referrals that I'm getting, they're in crisis. Like, you know, it sounds like to the professional, they are also not, they have a child that is, you know, either has a behavioral um, health diagnosis, or um, a special needs diagnosis. But there's also other factors, there has to be other like, you know, food scarce um, factors or housing or finances or a single parent, you know, it has to be this other dynamic for the parent to be looked at like, oh, hey, they could probably use a hand navigating the system. So yeah. the parents that I'm hearing that don't know anything about family peer support within the place that I do family peer support you know, Mm -hmm. they they're there once a month, twice a month, and they've never Mm -hmm. heard that there's a family peer supporter that could come and talk to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, the more I talk to those people, it's because they are, they, they seem fine on the outside. They seem like they know what they're doing. They seem to be advocating enough for their child. They seem to be mark checking down some sort of list that, you know, either the medical professionals or the therapist has this is my assumption also you know they seem like they know what they're
1: doing yeah you're kind of describing you know the term the walking wounded you know in mental health right it's people who are still functioning they're still going to work they still have families but they're suffering in silence is what they're doing do you think that, because um, I wonder this in, in in the behavioral health side, right? I don't have the same experience as the two of you as a parent, um, but I often wonder if there's a certain jadedness that just naturally comes into play in the for the professional, because the only people they're seeing are people who are coming in because something's wrong. And so it's like, instead of recognizing they all need help, it's like we're segmenting it into, well, this group over here, yeah, you're kind of okay, so we won't do anything with you. And you over here, you're kind of in the middle over here. And then, yeah, this little group over here, oh yeah, you need lots of services. Because when I hear you say, food scarcity, homelessness, that's crisis. If you don't have food, and you don't have a home on top of having a child with a special healthcare need, that's already crisis mode. We're already in the most extreme state. And I just wonder if like that just sort of happens naturally to, you know, counselors and doctors and stuff. And because it's like, that's the only people, it's like, if you walk into an emergency room, I mean, some people are having a heart attack and they can die in the next like 10 minutes, right? But then there's other people who come in with different ailments and they're probably not going to die. It's uncomfortable, it's painful, or they need some stitches or something, but they're probably not going to die. And it's like, is there a natural human sort of element at play there that sort of like goes, yeah, you seem like you're okay, Kayla, you're on your own, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And like, but you're really not right. You're really, you're really not.
2: No. And I didn't mean to, you know, I, I'm glad that you pointed that out because I also have that same, um, you know, urge in me to with the families that I'm working with when there are these other factors besides just, you know, a diagnosis, um, you know, yes, I agree. They're in, they're in crisis and they, they need guidance and they need support and they need someone to walk alongside them and help them, you know, um, with all those different, um, journeys that you have to walk down. But, um, there also is other human beings in this world. Like, I guess, what did you just call the walking wounded? Um, I, I guess I very much was a walking wounded mom or human. Um, and I think just having, you know, someone's And I understand too, like medical professionals and counselors and doctor, you know, whoever, you know, I understand that they're very busy themselves. And I'm, I'm not also talking poorly on them because I know a lot of them in the setting that I work in are very compassionate, will stop what they're doing to listen. You know, if I have a concern or a question about a family, I think the thing that frustrates me is, is why do people always have to be in crisis to need some sort of connection or some Person, you know telling them you know you're not alone or it's going to be okay or why do people have to get to crisis for people to listen in the medical right. field in the service right. field in like right. why does that always have to be like oh no now you're out of food okay now we're listening why does yeah. that have to be the barrier you have to get to for something to start moving along and you
1: being you know plugged in with the people that you need to be plugged in with Mm-hmm. Well, Beth, you mentioned you mentioned payers, insurance companies, not paying unless your your child was in "quote unquote" crisis. Yeah,
0: yeah, even that to me doesn't make sense because it is in the insurance's best interest to pay for preventative treatment or care versus acute care. Um, I know that when our daughter was stay. Two or three days in the inpatient psychiatric unit. It was 30,000, 30, 45,000. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And
0: this program that I was wanting her to get into for six months was 60,000. So would for you rather? Months. For six months. Right. Right. And But, you know, no, we have to go spend thirty five thousand first for acute care and then we'll spend the sixty thousand for the treatment. But we won't do it the other way around. It's this whole like we don't want to give them something that they might not need yet. Like we want to, you know, and it's
1: right.
0: Yeah. It's that crisis mentality. It's that, you know, waiting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that's a great example right there, right, of the, I, I've always wondered this, you know, I'm somebody who <clears throat> had many three-day stays in stabilization centers, behavioral health units. Why is it three days? Who, who chose three days? Who Who's the person who chose that? What's that based on? Because today, the only thing it's based on is payers. Th- that's what it's based on. It's all they'll pay for it has nothing to do with the wellness of the individual. Mm-hmm. Some need some need one day, some need three, some need seven, some need 30, some need six months. And that does not even factor in. I can remember working as a peer supporter, and uh I think I can talk about this because the place is closed now. So I was working in Bozeman at the in in the community as a peer supporter, and they would actually discharge somebody on the third day wait an hour and bring them back in and take them back through intake again and make them fill out the paperwork and the whole thing. They're already there. Like it's like, it's, it's really like, it's the opposite of how you would care for people pay for a system. Mm -hmm. And then we face these issues today of workforce shortages, high turnover rates, right? And Kayla, mm-hmm. you were you were just sharing this about you wanna talk about that with with the struggles you've had with your
2: with yeah. your son
1: and, and the people you're working with, right? You've gone through a whole whole bunch of folks.
2: Yeah. So when he was in ECI, which wasn't for very long because um like I said, so a regression period with a, a typical child happens between eighteen to twenty four months. So like right but right before that two year old birthday. And ECI in the state of Montana is, um, zero to three. I think it's pretty similar in other states as well. It's that early, you know, childhood um, brain development stage. Um, and since he, we got into the program, um, closer to when he was three, we, you know, we were kind of late to the service game and our, um, our case worker, or case manager, she was fantastic. She also had a child with special health care needs. So I will add that. So I also got a um, case manager. I can't remember. I don't think that that's actually what they're called, but um, you know, basically she's overseeing the program that the state is funding. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, so I got that, I got that family peer support aspect with her. Like, yes, she worked for the state, you know, through a, you know, a, a funding, uh, program, but she also had a child with special health care needs, So she knew exactly what I was going through. She knew exactly what I was feeling, even mm-hmm. though our stories were different, she, she got it. And so that was my first example with services. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I got so lucky. You know, I just felt so validated and heard and, um, Empowered, and you know all the things that I think we're trying to do within family peer support. But then he enters another program, and it's based on his on the children's disability, so the severity of their disability. So, like, let's say a child has autism, but it's not as severe as like Bryce's autism. Well, they go way down lower on the the totem pole, even though autism affects them the same the same way. It's just not as like loud to you know, teachers or therapists or whoever, but it still affects the family unit and the child the same way as it would affect Bryce. Bryce might be more, you know, nonverbal and and louder within his behaviors with like, you know, making noises. Um, I, I don't know. So that to me, number one was a huge, like, wow. So there's probably thousands of families in this state at three years old get cut from this other program and then there's this waiting list to get into another program and there's no services support check-ins you know nothing and then um so Bryce said yeah since he's nonverbal he's considered you know uh um, has more severe so there's like uh, three levels um so he got in um not quickly but rather quickly and uh, we were doing all the different check-ins. And every single time I'm like, why? Every time I got off the phone with them, I felt more depleted than I felt like they were helping me. I felt more drained and exhausted from having to like, okay, so what's Bryce doing? Even though at his clinic, you know, I'm like, can they just send you over the paperwork? Like they already have his goals written. We already have all of this done. I've already sat with them and, you know, talked this out for hours. And they're like, oh no, we have to come up with our own you know, own goal. So I'd have to sit on the phone with them after work. And then now I'm on to parent mode and I'm having to sit on the phone and like do that every, you know, every month and do these check-ins and, you know, they're not offering anything you ask for. Oh, is there something you like, can you help? They're like, oh, if you need anything, just let us know. Well, then you ask them and it's like, oh, that doesn't fall under our, um, that right. doesn't, yeah, that doesn't, we don't, we don't do right. funding for that and I'm like well then what because ECI would pay for Kelly Milius a play project um she comes in and does like play project they would pay for her to come for her hour of time Bryce got that through the state funding and or federal funding or yeah I think it's federal funding I'm sorry um but then you know then we go into this next level and anything we ask for besides I think one time they said oh do you think that he would benefit from some like flashcards?" and I was like sure like I can get them at the dollars you know yes I'm not down right. To do that right
1: right I can get them myself at the dollar store right right I, I can't pay for a therapist a play therapist at 200 bucks an hour I can yes. get my own flashcards.
2: yes but then you know she came back the next time and said oh I could use the flashcards got approved and I was like cool like Right, you are not helping me, you know, so, right. but I also knew that it's important because, you know, they help with this, this waiver, like later on down the road, that it's this big push. So that's where Bryce is at now. So seven to eight, they can, you can start the process to get on this waiver to, um uh you know, to have set them up for funding for the future, because that also is a seven year wait in the state of Montana. So you have to get wait, them. No, no, wait, for- how long? <laughs> seven so yeah, seven years to be seven years yeah seven years because there's only a limited available spots how old do you have to be to qualify
1: for the program um
2: i believe that if you i think it's 10 but i think people are kids are having to wait till they're like close to like
1: 15 you'd be 17 you'd be 17 by the time your name came up and then you turn 18 and then you're not eligible for the program
2: yeah if you're still on the waiting list no
1: how can there be a waiting list for families that's 7 years long how's that even possible i i i have i that I, yeah that is not a question for me see that's the kind of in it, yeah no no right i mean i guess that's a rhetorical kind of thing i'm just saying aloud because it's like that makes no sense if you're 10 years old and you get on a waiting list and you have to wait 7 years they're basically just saying we don't want to fund any children because we know you're just gonna age out by the time you get done with the list I mean either a you need to hire more people or B you need to add more money or a combination of both you need to add more money and more people so we can serve more because then if you apply for SSI if you make you know if you make
2: a certain amount of money because like with Bryce like the therapy costs for him are out. You know they're outrageous, even with private insurance.
1: What does that cost? What does it cost? Give us an idea. Uh,
2: every year, it could be with like speech OT and a. You know he goes to ABA all day. It's I think it's like fifty thousand a year.
1: Fifty thousand a year.
2: Without a yeah, so it's like basically a person's salary, if that. Right. And then I, you know, my out, out of pocket is a little bit. No, I, and I think, sorry, I think for I think within the program, sorry, I think it's like a hundred and fifty thousand to the insurance company a year. And then like the out of pocket to families would be like anywhere from like thirty to fifty with all the co-pays and the yeah. Yeah. So to insurance it's more. And also they don't though that type of um that type of therapy, a lot of a lot of the therapy places in town or in you know the state of Montana don't take Medicaid funding for that because they won't pay what they actually charge. Right,
1: right, because they pay so little. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you and so Beth, I'm gonna ask you. I mean, you probably ran into this with your daughter. What's that? This issue, this same kind of issue. Well, I know within the mental health system, this is a major issue, right? Is that like why would a psychiatrist work for a state funded program for a hundred bucks an hour when they could work on their own for 350 an hour? Like, Mm -hmm. so, so what happens is it, it means that the really good psychiatrists go out on their own and then who are you left with in the system? Right. Yeah. The newbies. Yeah. Yeah. Who are just cutting their teeth. I mean, they're just, they're just learning so they're not as knowledgeable. They're not as experienced. They don't have the bedside manner. You know, they're mostly straight out of college and and they are just there to do their time, so to speak. And then they're moving on with the turnover rate, right? Which is, I'm just gonna do my time and then I'm gonna move on to another job. And now the company is back, back to the starting gates. Oh, we gotta go hire somebody again. Right.
0: There are no, when my daughter was in the inpatient unit and then also doing her psychiatry at the same organization, that was about 10 years ago. There's not a single person there that was there when we were there. They've either
1: retired or they have left. Oh, Meaning all the staff turned over, all the staff turned over within a 10-year, yeah, within a 10-year period. Yeah, the psychiatrist did, yeah.
0: And you know, for behavioral health, it might be a little different with Medicaid. Um, we were encouraged to quit a job and get on Medicaid so that her <laughs> oh. treatment would be covered and it would be covered for a long period of time as opposed to private insurance that's going to say, OK, your child, you know, in residential treatment needs to be there, you know, two weeks. How long does it take for the med change? You know, sort of thing. We were encouraged if we wanted, yeah, her to have quality care to get on, to, you know, yeah, quit a job and get on Medicaid.
1: So let me, so what did you think about that when that was suggested to you? What did did you and your husband think about that?
0: I think we did whatever we could to help her. So if that's, I mean, I mean, yeah. So if that's what they said to do. And so, um, Yeah, we kept our income low. And then even after the treatment program, um, we purposely kept it low so that she could have quality care. You know, and so it's like, it's, Mm. yeah, it isn't.
1: It's so backwards, right?
0: There was never a meeting or a decision. In any of her environments, whether that's in the school or, you know, hospital or treatment center, there was never once a decision that was made on what is the best for this child. It was how much is it going to cost? Who's it going to cost? Do we really need to do this? We don't have enough, you know, we don't have enough people to handle this. There was never, yeah, it wasn't ever about her and her care.
1: How frustrating was that for you?
0: It was awful. It was, um, yeah, you're just running. I just felt like I was in a system. I felt like I had a child that at any moment could, you know, could be in crisis, could take her whole life. And it didn't matter. I didn't feel any better whether we were in the system or out of the system. It was like, Mm. no matter the supports or the services, I didn't ever, Mm. you know, I didn't ever feel like, okay, this kid is helped and there is something in place. It was just like, we were there to protect her. And that was it. It was tough
1: you carry that with you as a family peer supporter
0: yeah as a as a family peer supporter dealing with some of the same situations with the families um it's just so aggravating it just makes you want to cry in fact i've I've cried as a family peer supporter because the injustice of it and the way that you know families are treated um especially in the behavioral health part of it you know most people who we came into contact with did not understand behavioral health as a you know as a health
1: as a health issue
0: a physical health condition right it was what are you doing at home how are you parenting her Mm -hmm. um you know maybe you should try this maybe you should try that and that's just I think how it is I feel like as a society we're getting a lot more um we're able to, to view mental health as health but you don't get the same um you just have to really like you have to fight for everything because they physically you know from the outside looking from the inside from people on the outside, everything looks fine. They're healthy, you know, physically able, they're smart. That's a hard one too. If your child is smart, then if they have a behavioral health diagnosis, they won't get put into the school's uh, special education programs because they're smart. They don't need it. And um, so it's really, it's frustrating. I think that. Um, yeah, as a parent, I definitely felt blamed and, and then I probably blamed myself more than anybody else because it's like, I look at her who looks exactly the same as all these other children in her class Mm -hmm. and these other children are able to do whatever they're asked to do and mine Mm -hmm. isn't. And so really the only difference I thought was, well, they have different parents than mine has. Mm -hmm. So it has to be Mm -hmm. our fault. Um, And so that's just a
1: a hard thing. You and I have, uh, you and I have talked about this, I think on another podcast, we talked kind of about that particular aspect. Um, And it must be very, very challenging. Um, It's interesting, you know, what you said there about uh, being smart, and as if that as if that is some sort of measurement for your mental well-being like like it's basically saying like if you're not smart then you're not healthy mentally but if you're smart yeah you don't really need much help (laughs) like it's it's, a choice you're choosing this it's like that is so backwards and and i and i um you know, I'm curious about this part, and I'm glad you're both sharing this your, your roles as peer supporters, because I know for me, when I started as a peer supporter and I got to see behind the curtains, uh, sitting in a staff meeting in a mental health center with all these people with degrees, you know, it was a little bit intimidating at first, but I was shocked at the way they talked about the clients my my peers and talked negatively about them talked down about them the talk was not about their care and how to help elevate them it was like very degrading and very off-putting to me and very what you're kind of saying which a lot of like blaming and oh they're just being manipulative and these kinds of things it was really hard for me and at that time there weren't many peer supporters in the state. And I would sit in these meetings and I just was like, man, I would hate those staff meetings because it was like I was the only one, you know. Like, am I the only one here in this? Like it was the culture. And I thought, is this how they talked about me? I used to go to a mental health center. You know, is this how people talked about me? And I think this is a whole nother issue within the behavioral health system that has to do with things like burnout and turnover and not celebrating the successes that you have, whether you're a psychiatrist, a counselor, a nurse, a peer supporter, whatever, there has to be some recognition of the successes to help balance out the very difficult work that's being done. And, and that's, that's, something that I've been thinking a lot about because it's been so many years now and I just keep seeing and hearing the same types of things. And it's like, how do we solve the burnout piece for people who are working in this field? I mean, you're both working in this field now. How do we keep people like you working for the next 10 years and not burn you out in the next year And then the families you work with are going to go through the exact same thing you went through, which is this turnover. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we do that? We have to create a healthier culture within the service providers.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Where, where, right.
0: I think if I was only working outside of recovery organization, I was just working with, you know, in a clinic or in a hospital setting yeah, I don't think I would last, but because we're working here at MPN also, we get that self-care. We're around people that understand we're around people that, you know, care about our health, our whole health. Um, I think that's honestly what keeps me there. And it's something I brought up at a um, commission meeting I was at not too long ago was the, we, the the children and the families who are getting served by these organizations are the ones that need somebody there to be, you know, long-term, long-lasting, you know, stability. And they're the ones that have the highest turnover rate. And it's because they come in with little training. They're given way too many families because, you know, they're, you know, short they're short staffed, but they're short staffed because they keep piling yeah. you know families onto the new yeah, person all yeah. the time, you know. So they don't have enough workers or training. And then um, yeah, they don't know how to maybe care for themselves within this profession. Yeah. Um I yeah, it's just it's a tough spot and um the turnover rate is high, Mm -hmm. super high. And the, you know, the children and the families are the ones that really, you know, get the raw end of the deal because they're depending on the service or this provider to support them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. when so-and-so isn't there anymore and you get somebody new, or there isn't that, you know, we can't, Help with that, or it's it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, I
2: would say so. Like going back to the thing you were asked. You know, I just had a thought while you guys were talking. So yes, working within a clinic environment, it I would say the ones that I get the most, like my heartstrings are just like you know ripping out of me and like. You know when did when did we get so far away at looking at you know these children and their parents mm-hmm. for the you know like not not like at yes we're looking at the behavior like oh they said they're going to hit the dog with a stick I don't I'm you know it's not anything that ever happened within I'm just thinking of an example mm-hmm. and then. You know, we're not looking at the child or the parent, you know, like, what is, what is the behavior? What is behind that behavior? What are, what are they trying to tell us? And so like, I, and I, I don't have a degree in psych, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a counselor, but I have, you know, I have lived experience of complex, you know, CPTSD. I have ADHD that was diagnosed way later in life. And when these families come through and I'm working with them, you know, and there's these big, long notes and they're just these like big, you know, there's these big crisis plans and like in an emergency, bring them. And I understand that that's important, but I can look at it and say like, well, yeah, no wonder they're acting like that. They have severe trauma in their past. Why aren't Mm -hmm. they being treated for their trauma Mm -hmm. and why are they being, you know, put on all these medications? And why are, why is the plan to take them to the emergency room? Why aren't we getting, you know, somebody to sit down with them and talk to, I don't know. It's just, to me, it's, and I'm, i know that there's, it's case by case. I'm not saying that I know all, or I know best. It's just very easy for me to, because I have that lived experience
1: Mm -hmm.
2: with, you know, not only myself, but, you know, my younger brother, like. We have different stories, but you know, we were a part of both of our stories. And to me, it's it seems so it's it's not as complex as as these systems of care. I feel like are are making them. If that makes sense, you know, I think the root of all of these behaviors is is trauma, and if the trauma is treated, I would be amazed to see what would happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely right, we've built this super complex system that even as people who work in this field, we have a hard time navigating and understanding all the acronyms and all the departments Absolutely. and all the, right. How, how does, how does a new mom, you know, enter into the system for the first time and navigate this whole thing? It seems impossible. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years and I have a fairly good grasp on the system, but I don't know all the different parts of it. I, I just don't, it just seems like we've made this, what you said, it's like been made way too difficult. And
2: because I do think there's cases where, you know, the diagnosis is just like anxiety and severe depression, you know, like I do think there's those cases where, yeah, yeah. yeah, Yes. Those are, but then it's like, there's other cases where it's like oh all this stuff happened and then now they're behaving this way and we have no idea and it's like just this like oh my god i cannot believe this you know this person's acting like this i'm like well of course they're acting like this like to me when they're talking about it they make it sound so like it doesn't make sense i'm like it makes perfect sense to me they're 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 hurting they're (laughs) you know they need to So that's what I'm saying is like, yes, there are cases, yes, they just have anxiety and they have depression, you know, and it's very simple and straight laced, but I feel like everything has just become so like convoluted, like to, you know, where there's, oh, they must have trauma or the parent must not be doing well. No, there are cases where, you know, the diagnosis, the chemical imbalance in them is it's anxiety and it's depression and it's, you know, ADHD and it's autism, but then there's I don't know. I think, I think that's what I feel the most power in being a family peer supporter is that at least in those cases, like I am there to say, whoa, hold up a sec. Like, why aren't we going back to what happened in the past? Why are we focusing on these, you know, behaviors that are arising now? Why?" Like, I think that's where, you know, so I feel empowered to do that and to, you know, kind of open up the family's discussion about, like, let's go back to that and let's, you know, let's heal that and let's walk through that and then see kind of what happens within the family unit and the family mm-hmm. um, environment. Not not that I would help them heal. I'm just saying, like, let's, let's, um, let me help you navigate the systems that can help you
0: Heal and um, yeah, I don't know. I think we have a unique perspective because we're not focused on the psych, you know, psychiatry part or the, you know, primary care provider. Part. I mean, we don't have these things that we are, you know, really focused on because that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. We really have this, you know, ability to kind of, you know, see everything as a whole and i think when you've experienced it you offer people a lot more grace and you offer people a lot more help and support mm-hmm. i know i have overheard conversations um about you know well this mom didn't bring her child to the appointment and they always miss their appointment and it's always something like oh my car oh this we'll just get it together put it down on a calendar you know and i just want to say well for you, taking your child to the doctor may be very easy, but to a mom who is working and raising her children and her children have behavioral health challenges, so she is like putting 10 times more energy into this child, parenting the child, and then probably has her own, you know, mental health too, and yeah, just needs some help. Just needs someone to call and say, "Hey, don't forget about your, mm-hmm. you know, appointment." And it's, it just, it isn't a choice sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this idea of like, well, you should just be able to, you know, to do better. Yeah, um, does not
2: take health into account. An example of that is like, yes, I'm a family care supporter and Beth is my, you know, we work together. But even so, like, I brought Rice to the clinic recently because he had an appointment and she said what time's the appointment and I said I bet you'll hear him before I like I don't even tell me to tell you what time it is and we walked in the front doors and he was like walked in and he was like yeah no thank you and like scooted past all these people and started to try to like run out of the clinic so I like got him back in and he was not he was just like oh god and out came Beth and just like seeing her face took like you know, a tiny bit of that, like pressure off of like, Oh God, Bryce is going to like, you know, he's going to try to run out the door. He's going to, you know, be sitting here looking at the fish and then he's going to, I don't know, like even just, yes, she's my coworker and, and yes, she already knows Bryce. And, but even just having that person to like walk out that door and be like, Hey, Mm -hmm. hi Bryce. How's it going? And acknowledge Bryce for Bryce and not like, Oh gosh, that kid with autism. Down there being really loud, or right, right. you know, um, even even that just like her smile and her, um, you know, sitting with us while we were in the waiting room because even just the waiting room feels like an hour sometimes when it's only a ten minute wait with a child with autism because right. right. they have such you know bad anxiety. So I even had my own personal experience with that with with Beth with Bryce recently, and even just that wait that that lifted off that ten minutes. was was monumental
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: well and kayla when you were first hired it was maybe your first day maybe your second day and all of the providers are in a staff meeting or something it's kind of lunchtime kind of whatever and there is a very loud child in a waiting room who has been waiting a very long time and very loud and Kayla was the only one to be like I am going to go help this mom like you know something's going on and I'm going to go help her and she went and she got you know things for the kid to do uh, stickers and toys and just that poor mom I'm sure in the waiting room felt mortified that her child is in there screaming and I'm sure people were like what's going on there you know the mom needs to get a handle on it. But Kayla goes in and, and just supports the mom. And I think the mom even started crying. Yeah,
2: the kid didn't
0: want me in there
2: either. But I was like, I mean, I'm not scared. Of... I could tell also, I I think now like, like movements and tones and voices. I like, I bet they have autism. Like, I could hear it through like doors and, um or, you know, just those like, those subtle things that you learn through your own lived experiences but yeah then the mom actually got to like sit and talk to the doctor and wasn't like flustered and um yeah so i think it's just important it's important to have you you know and you know there's so many other factors that come with it where like with with bryce like he doesn't want to get on the scale he doesn't want to be like there's these weird you know, to other people it might seem weird, but to them it's that's just overwhelming. I don't want to go stand on that big thing and then have you put that stick on my head, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't want that. And um, you know, and I think you know because I don't think that it's it's everybody in the medical field. I just think it's just like you know, they're in, they're out. Next patient, they're in, they're out. Next patient. You know, I don't. I don't think it's you know a a person because of billing. Yeah, I don't think it's a personal
1: thing. Well well that's but. what I'm that's what I'm I'm hearing. I mean, you know, do we do we need to rethink the way we train people, the way we educate them in college to have more focus on this human aspect, right? Because I'm hearing you both say as family peer supporters, I have this unique experience and I can intervene in these situations. I I mean, if we're spending, and now the federal government's even going to pay for your college tuition, evidently. So if we're paying for this, then maybe we need to rethink that too. Maybe we need to rethink the way we're teaching people and say, it needs to be more trauma informed. It needs to be more about a lived experience and the value that that can bring to your practice and quit this nonsense with production and numbers right like a doctor can only spend seven minutes with a client and but yeah like that stuff is ridiculous and we need to start putting our foot down to say we're not going to do that anymore we're going to do it a different way and maybe we'll get better outcomes in 10 years instead of this just what we have now because to me it's just a giant mess i mean i i can't even navigate my own blue cross blue shield i mean i can't like and it's just me it's like You know, Mm -hmm. I got to pick a doctor and I don't know, there's like a gazillion faces on the screen and I got to pick one and I don't know which is which and which has a waiting list. And like, it's super complicated. And it's like, we've really made a mess of, in my opinion, of healthcare in particular, if we talk about behavioral healthcare, kids with special healthcare needs. And if we need to be focused on anybody, we need to be focused on the kids and the families health health you know preventative health
2: we need more patients
0: doctors (laughs) it is complicated and when you're new to it you don't know what is you know is. yeah i don't know is this how it's supposed to be i don't know i have no so an example was when i was in the er with a mom Had she been in that ER herself without anybody and treated the way she was treated, she would have walked out of there, you know, feeling like, well, I guess that's just how it is. You know, this is, you know, it's, I should be doing better. It is all my fault. But having somebody there to say, no, no, this is not about you. This was not okay. This was not good healthcare. um, Is so, I mean, even if the healthcare doesn't change, at least, you know, it isn't you. Um, and you know what you can expect. You know what you should be having, what your children should be, you know, um, what sort of services, you know, your child should have. But when you don't know, you trust who's ever in front of you that they're right. explaining it right. all and they're telling you all and, about it. And yeah. um,
1: and they're kind of the experts, too. I mean, there's right. a, there's a factor. There's a factor there, too. When you go into a facility you make the assumption. We all do this. We make the assumption that the people who work there are the experts and I don't know. Yes, Like that's how most people walk into a hospital or a doctor's office and you're just like, well, they know. And so they tell me this, that must be true. Mm -hmm. And I think once you begin working on the other side, you begin realizing, no, that's actually not how it is. The people working here have mental illnesses and substance use issues and special healthcare needs. And you know and some are not that educated and
2: And when sometimes even just getting to the appointment like you almost like this like not like blackout in a like you know but like almost this blackout thing comes over you as a mom or a caregiver or a parent where you're like there and you're like yeah 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 but there's like no retention and there's no memory of like oh i needed to ask you know this or this and this so even just having like a A family person or somebody else with you like in the room so they can't focus or hey what did they say about this you know to me and i can say oh i i don't remember but let me go clarify or they said x y or z i don't know
1: or or let me look in this book i have that i wrote everything down in right so so let's talk let's wrap up by talking a little bit about that so that we've had this kind of conversation many a times and uh you the two of you got together and the and our other family peer supporter aaron got together and created a a new book and do you want to do you want to talk about that and how what that's all about and go for it you want me to do it (laughs) yeah yeah tell us
2: yeah so we I don't remember how, what we were talking about a long time ago, but I was talking about that first initial, um, you know, person at ECI that also had a child with special health care needs to Jim and Beth and Aaron and kind of the group. And I said, you know, half the time I didn't even know what was happening myself. Like we've been talking about, I didn't know the questions to even asking. I didn't even know. And um, I got so overwhelmed or I was like emotional. And so this, um, her name was Tressa and I know she'd be okay with me sharing who she was. Um, she just gave me this like regular notebook and she's like, you're going to like take notes during there. There's things I say, just like write it down so that, you know, it's, it's somewhere. And then if you have questions for me later, or if you, and, um, and then Jim kind of stopped me after a while and he's like, what kind of notebook was it? I was like, I I don't know. I was just talking and I said, I think it was just like a regular notebook and we all kind of just got talking and then Aaron said, Oh, there is, um, you know, there's these different like sheets that I, that I've seen where like all of the information can be compiled. And so we got talking more and more and I was like, how cool would that be if we had, if we made our own book with our, all of our experiences with being parents and navigating systems that care of care ourselves, and put a book together for parents and um, children to go be the best advocates um, that they can be for themselves, because when they get to the appointment, all this information is in this book. So we did it, and we made a book called The Lifeline Notebook, and yeah, and we we're so excited.
1: Lifeline Notebook, Yep. Yeah. And, and it's available on our website, mtpeernetwork.org. You can go to the store. It's up there now. It can be ordered. <clears throat> uh, they're they're $20. And it's kind of cool on the cover. There's a big uh, life preserver, uh, the lifeline notebook, a notebook designed by and for parents and caregivers of children with special health care needs. And uh, yeah, I know when we were having that conversation and talking about it and editing it and all of that. Um, I could tell all of you were drawing on your your actual experiences to say, oh, we need to have this in there, or we need to have that, or that doesn't work quite right. It needs to look a little different or, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's neat uh, to see something go through the whole, you know, from, hey, that would be cool to do to, you know, boom, like, here, here it is now. It's, it's here. It's available, and it's a tool, right, for for families to be able to utilize.
2: But also having, also having an amazing boss that listens to us,
1: Jim. Oh, and, stop, no, stop, seriously,
2: stop. and says like, "Wait, stop. that would be helpful for you guys. Okay, let's that's, do
0: it." It's, yeah, it's, it's
1: yeah, true. That's, <laughs> that's just common sense.
0: That's <laughs> so what's great about it's our not. job. No, Jim. I think that's what's great about our job is as parents, we have the capacity, since this is our job, to really be able to take the tools that would have been helpful for us yeah. and put them in for us families. Because as a family, when you're navigating your child's health care, you just don't have the capacity to be creative or to think, hey, I think this right. would be a great idea. Um, and so that's I think one of the one of the great things is we get to, yeah, we get to have for folks what we wish we would have. And we also get to support folks like, um, when we were walking through it, we wish yeah. that we had.
1: Yeah. yeah. thank Yeah. Thanks for the work that you do. It's so important. And, um, it, it is hopefully changing the system. Sometimes that's hard to see. Um, but it is, you're definitely having an impact on, on families and children and, mm-hmm. um, we'll keep advocating here. We'll keep advocating and working towards the bigger systems change, right? And having peer supporters within agencies is the best way to do it, right? Like you can advocate from the outside, stand out on the street and yell and shout and have a sign, a picket sign and all that. And that might do something, but having somebody on the inside changes things from the inside out, right? You rub off on the other staff and the clients, and right? And then that begins to change things like policy and culture and and I I just, I wanna see it commonplace. And I wanna see the state of Montana step up and fund family peer support fully the way it's funded behavioral health peer support so that we can have folks like the two of you working in all the different agencies who serve families that it shouldn't be limited to just a few places it should be widely available Mm -hmm. and so in order for that to happen the system has to commit both the system in terms of the state of montana Mm -hmm. uh department of health and human services but also private insurance because when i heard you say that beth about oh hey just you know just have one income, make less money for your family, and then we'll give you some services. That is so backwards. That is that's the system telling you to be less than so you can get proper care. Right. It's like Basically, it's completely yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like be less than, don't, don't try to achieve more, don't try to raise my family up just to get basic health care. And those are the kinds of things that um as we start doing this new format with our podcast, these are exactly the, the topics that we're gonna talk about on this show. And we're gonna keep on talking about them and we're gonna start highlighting stuff like this and really get in depth. And I really enjoyed this conversation today and I really thank you both um, for being so open and, and vulnerable. Um, but this is the only way I think we're gonna do it is by sort of shining a spotlight onto these things and raising people's awareness. If you don't have a child with special health care needs, you're, you probably have no idea. You probably have no idea that the system is so difficult to navigate. So we need to tell these stories. And there's all kinds of parts of the story that we need to tell and highlight mm-hmm. and talk about. And, and it's not that the three of us have the answers. We don't have the answers, but we're offering some solutions like family peer support, like a notebook. Right. I mean, these are inexpensive, really, in the big scheme of things. And so I really call on DPHHS to step up and they need to start funding this widespread across the state and stop talking about it and saying we should have more meetings and things like that. Every quarter we're going to have a meeting. Just do it. Just put it into place. Yeah. Find a way. That's what happened with behavioral health peer support. That was the lingering question for five years as we met and were developing behavioral health peer supporters. Everybody kept asking. Every meeting, somebody would ask, well, how are we going to pay for it all? Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And it's like, we'll figure that out later. Like, we need to build the structure, and we'll figure that out. And sure enough, it got all figured out. <laughs> and so that's what we need for family peer support. Um
0: and we need funding that isn't for a specific population. Yes. We need to not have to say to families, well, lower your income. Yes. Yes. If you're, you know, on Medicaid, you can have this service. It should be that's available right. to that's everybody. Right. That's
1: terrible that we do that to people. That's really, that is like, that's terrible. That's not something that shouldn't even enter the conversation.
2: Um, I, I think it'd be interesting to right. see if these systems, you know, intricated peer support, family peer support just how much money they would be saving in so many different areas. Like I know it within, I mean, I don't have the actual statistics or like the percentages or the dollar amounts, but I know in my heart and soul that it would save, you know, because like, just look at when funding gets cut in so many areas, you start to see crime, you you know, all of, all of those things increase. And I know it in my heart and soul that you would, they would see such a decrease in so many other things.
1: For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and yeah. Thank you. And and, uh, you both will definitely be back on future podcasts and we'll be talking about different stuff. Um, And I also want to say thank you to the listener. Uh, We need, we need your, we need your support. We need you to tell people about what we're doing Uh, Montana's Peer Network, the recovery movement, family peer support, you know, um, and uh, keep tuning in and tell your your friends about it so that they listen in. Um, It's important. We're going to keep bringing you stuff just like this. If you have ideas or you want to come on and be a guest and talk about something, experiences you've only had, reach out to us, okay, and go to our website or you can email us info at mtpeernetwork.org and let us know uh, what you got on your mind. We're always looking for stuff and we'll keep putting these out and keep doing the doing good work. So thank you. And uh, we'll catch you on the next podcast.
2: What family peer support means to me is being the person that I wish that I would have had when I was walking a very lonely and isolating road.